0: Welcome to the Untranslatable Podcast. Today we are here recording episode 91, and we are bringing you a very, very special episode from Nusla in Prague with a great friend of mine, and it will be an exciting episode. But before we introduce our very special guest for today, uh, without further ado, my good buddy, my pal, and the man with the tasty jams, my buddy Jared. What's going on, Jared? Hello. You know it's a special episode because I'm wearing a blazer.
1: Not only tasty jams, but... Tasty uh, threads as well, not including my background. But first, please <laughs> spread a little love <laughs> and uh, follow us on Instagram, Untranslatable Podcast, Twitter, Untranslatable One, the number one. That's where I post the episode, songs of the pod, uh, ridiculous things I see on Twitter. Uh, you can give us topic ideas. You can give us untranslatables, which are idioms, uh, sayings, proverbs that don't make any sense in a certain language, but once you translate them and define them, make a little bit more sense, or you can email us, gmail.com. Also, we have a website, untranslatablepodcast.com, and most importantly, if you don't listen to anything else, spread a little love, five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. It's going up. I don't know if you've noticed, but the reviews are going up, not to brag, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I just did. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And as I mentioned, today we have a very, very special guest and a very uh, eloquent man who I'm happy to call my friend. He is a fantastic composer, and I believe a visiting composer at Hamu. Is that correct?
2: That's correct, yeah.
0: And his name is Ravi Katapa, and we are very, very excited to have him on our podcast today. Yay! Yay! Oh, oh, wait, hold on. I could
1: have I been prepared for this.
0: <laughs> Hamhorn. The party just got started.
1: What is uh, right. H-hamud. H-hamud. Hamud? Hamud.
2: Hamu. Hamu, No, H-A-M-U. Oh,
1: Hamu. Okay. Hamu.
2: So there's Hamu and Famu and Damu and all these different things. But uh, basically, uh, the rough translation is the Arts or Academy of Performing Arts in Prague. Okay. And that's where I am. Hlubni is what the H stands for. I don't know what the rest stands for. Oh, I'm it's sorry. A,
1: it's an acronym. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, okay. Capital okay.
2: H A, M U. Yes. So capital H wh- capital A capital M capital U.
1: <laughs> okay. So a couple days ago, Chad texted me at an obscene hour, uh, like three. For usual. <laughs> and he was like, "Hey, I got a guess." Obscene
2: for some. Uh,
1: it was obscene <laughs> <That> for me. <laughs> that that's for is sure. true. That My is first true. thing was like, "Why are you awake right now?" Uh, but I'm glad he was because he messaged me and he said that, uh, he had a guest and that he met you somewhere, but I don't know how you guys met or how this came to be. I'm just happy you're here.
2: Oh, oh, wow. Well, I think maybe Chad, you can explain this.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, oh, that's true. Yeah. I got the the swag on today. That's right. So I, uh, let me lift the mic so all of you YouTubers can (laughs) see it. Um, yeah, so I met Ravi through the Fulbright here, so I'm an English teacher, and Ravi is a uh, visiting composer, as we mentioned, and uh, the funny thing is we, we were at the same orientation in Prague, unfortunately didn't really chat at all, I was too busy with my English teaching cohort, and Ravi was with the other, um, you know, students and scholars there, and so I think we really started to hang out in humpulets, right? Yeah, I, well... I feel like, um, no, we must have hung out
2: in, in Boobinets when we were there, right?
0: I, w- I wasn't with you guys in Boobinets. Great name. Uh, no, I think it's a great name, isn't it? Boobinets. <laughs> yes. That's how you know you're in Prague. <laughs> Boobinets.
2: Uh, uh, no. The, 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 you were there. That's the orientation thing, man.
0: Uh-huh. Maybe we spoke a, for a minute.
2: Was that Boobinets or which part was? Didn't we, we were in
0: Prague 5.
2: Yeah, that's yeah, boom nuts. Yeah, nuts. okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Ravi, and I'm happy I have Ravi on because he, <laughs> he lives here in Prague and he knows the ins and outs of Prague um, very, okay. very well. So
2: Yeah, so when we had that orientation, they put him in a hotel and they didn't give me shit. <laughs> I, I walked there. I walked there because they expect me to live there. Right, know? okay. So okay. I had to sort out my living situation. And I, I walked over there where we would meet on Ronalda Regana, is the name of the street.
0: Ronald mm-hmm. Reagan, for those of yes. you who Oh, really? speak Czech.
1: Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's where the place was. And, uh, okay. No, didn't we talk at, like, we must have, I think we first spoke at the thing at the ambassador's house.
0: Oh, you're right, yeah, we did, that's true. That's when we true. first kind of connected
2: and spoke a bit more. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, and you told me a little bit about your music
0: that's right. Yes, You're right. Yes.
2: And then we followed up with that in Bullets. Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: And so mm. I'd just like to get back to your living situation, because you've had a very interesting ride while you've been here in Prague. You know, uh, so for me in Komutov, a lot of the listeners already know, I was provided accommodation through my mentor. Whereas uh-huh. for you, you've had a kind of, you've been moving around Prague in different places. Could you explain that?
2: Yeah. So, um, well... Uh, I guess I can't go into all the details right publicly, but uh, I I was moved.
1: Moving- <laughs> we have lawyers on
2: standby just in case. Uh, yeah, don't <laughs> well, <worry. laughs> wait, what's the viewership of this? I don't know. Like, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's to the we have, point where you can say whatever in, you like.
0: What twelve different countries? Yeah, yeah, you'll uh, be. Fine. It
1: varies, but somewhere around there.
2: Well, let's just say I was traveling around a bit for the first uh, uh, half of my time here in Fulbright, and so uh, it. Forced me to not always be in Prague. So it was quite uh, utilitarian for me to book short term rentals in Airbnb. So I'd kind of stay for a few weeks or a month in one Airbnb and then move to another one, maybe travel in between for a little bit. So I just kind of uh, have been staying in some of the cooler neighborhoods and now I'm here in fabulous nusla
1: um is but, that your apartment that, that you guys are in yeah right this mm-hmm. is where
2: i'm staying now and okay. likely staying i've got in here um at the beginning of april and i'll be staying here until i leave probably in the beginning of august so um uh but but since september i've stayed in uh, a lot of different neighborhoods here in prague that uh I would say uh, we're very hip and cool Um, to my New Yorker friends. I kind of equate them to, like, Williamsburg and Mm. Greenpoint and those kind of places. Um, But uh, now I'm in Nusla, and all my Czech friends, all my Prager friends are like, oh, now you're really living in Prague.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Can you you feel like you're really living in Prague now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I... I, (sighs) I, maybe it's a New Yorker in me, but I'm anywhere I go, I am always trying to ingratiate myself into the culture, into what's going on. I'm very into food and drink mm-hmm. and those things that are particular about the place that I'm in. I'm very interested in, obviously, as a musician, as a composer, I'm very interested in culture and art. So I uh, find my little inroads. Um, through various ways, usually just by talking to people. And uh, so, yeah, if you need some suggestions of where to eat or drink in Prague or
1: many other places, I,
2: I can, yeah, <laughs> I certainly can uh, give you some advice. Chat, should take
1: some notes. We're actually doing a, a tour guide series coming up soon where every other week we're going to focus on a city and talk and be like the tour guides for it. And the first one
0: is Prague, and we're doing that in a couple of days. So, that actually oh. might be might be useful. Don't don't well, you worry. I already have uh, places that Ravi has recommended that is on the list. Okay. Well,
2: just, you know, I just as the capitalist New Yorker in me, I I just want to let, you know, I'm creating my own podcast. It's going to be a tour guide of Prague. A competitive oh. <laughs> Watch out.
1: Bring it. Yeah. <laughs> Slipping on Gator piss. Um, so you're from New York New York, obviously.
2: Well, uh, oh, I've obviously. been a well. I lived in New York as long as I lived anywhere else. I grew okay. up on the East Coast in Pennsylvania. I went to college in Baltimore, did a year in uh, India. After that, came back and moved to New York rather quickly after I got back, mm. um, and then stayed there for about uh, twelve years. And then I moved to California for grad school. So I've been in California now. Well. From 2012 until the fall of 2018, when I moved here to Prague.
1: Okay, and that's—is that where you'd be going back to?
2: I will be going back to Paso Robles, California. Okay, wine country. Nice.
1: Yes. Nice. Yes. Yeah. I, I uh, Chad mentioned that you were a uh, wine connoisseur. Is a uh, does that have anything to do with you living in Paso Robles?
2: Yes, it certainly does. I have um, the reason I sort of ended up there. It's like, Long and convoluted story, but the, the way I discovered Paso is through a friend of mine who has a vineyard there who makes wine and it's phenomenal wine. Guyamar wines is what it's called. And his wine is really phenomenal and I would go down there and visit him quite a bit I and make some of those friends. Oh right, is, no kidding. <laughs> Ravi can connect you, have, trust if me. If you come to Paso, Jared, I've got lots of there are a lot of other great winemakers who are my friends in, in Paso too. i these are people that I uh I move in those circles when I'm there. Of course, it's the best uh the best way. And and my friend Ishka, who is the owner of Guyamar Wines, uh he's kind of uh they're they're like my family out there in california and and i help them out with anything that i can and so you know i they gave me a business card so (laughs) so that means i get to show up to all these industry events i do help them a lot and as much as i can with um events they're doing i pour wine for them from time to time i uh um, have put some of his wine in in restaurants and bars, and you know that's all just fun for me. But I get my industry discount, and I get to go to all the parties and uh, flash my card and taste wine for free. So it's fun. What's
1: the what's the process for getting their wine into restaurants? Are you just going? To, you're, I mean, you also mentioned that you're a foodie. You like going to restaurants. So mm-hmm. do you just go to a restaurant and just start talking up the sommelier?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's not always that simple. So, for example, like I spent some time in Kansas City and, and there was a guy there who was very interested in getting uh, my friend Ishka's wine there. And, um, you know, with all these laws that we have in the United States, you can't always uh, ship your wine everywhere. Mm-hmm. So most of the, the, the places that I've put his wine have been rather local in um San Luis Obispo County which is where Paso is and um I have uh basically in those cases it was just like talking to friends of mine who own wine bars and or people reaching out to me because I'm a uh, brand ambassador
0: mm. If you're I think Don for... could take some tips <laughs> yeah. from uh, Ravi for sure. I was
1: going to say, if you're looking for an unpaid internship, the Untranslatable Podcast is hiring. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, I mean, I'm
2: not getting paid for this?
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're paying Actually, you in... No, an, an... Pay
1: no you. more Chat'll wine pay for you. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> trying to pay Ravi in food and compliments, uh, You know what, what we can afford here. But We're yeah. paying you an exposure, which is uh, that's, good that's, Oh, man. That's, <laughs> I, I always hated exposure. that when I was an up-and-coming... You know, musician, not that I'm like some established musician, but there were a lot of gigs that we would be like, yeah, is there any way we can get paid? And, then, oh, we're paying you with exposure. And <laughs> to an extent, uh, I think that's bullshit. But yeah, uh,
2: yeah, well, that actually is a good segue to tell you about something else that I've, I've been doing. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I've been running a concert series um started in New York City called Permutations, mm-hmm. and it's now in San Francisco and Los Angeles as well as New York City. In fact, there was a concert on Saturday um, that unfortunately I had to miss at the DeMena Center for Classical Music on the west side of Manhattan. Uh, from what I've heard, it's it went it went gangbusters. It was quite great. But the, the impetus for me starting this concert series is especially in the weird kind of music that I do... Um, There are really great musicians who can't always find the funding to do uh, what it is, you know, they need to do. They're not the red hot chili peppers. They're not going to, you know, throw a party. It's serious music and it's kind Mm -hmm. of a specific audience. And um, I was commissioned uh, by a vocal ensemble, a quince vocal ensemble, who have uh, gotten some success since then. But... um, I organized a concert for them, as well as another co- uh, group uh, in New York City, and they tra- these these uh, five women traveled out from Ohio all the way to New York City. Stayed at my house. I, you know, cooked them food, and they put on a fantastic concert. They promoted the hell out of this concert. There ended up being about 90 people who paid between 50 nice. to 20 dollars at the door at this concert, and there was another. band on the bill or another group on the bill ensemble that also played some of my music. And at the end of the night, I remember walking up there with them and the guy who's from New York with his ensemble, he very graciously said, well, these ladies came all the way from Ohio. We're not going to take our cut. Just give it to them.
0: Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic.
2: And those ladies walked out with about $15 each. And That's when I realized, and that's New York City, Mm -hmm. this guy who had the connection at that, uh, you know, like you said, pay to play, the exposure, all that BS. I was in high school playing in rock bands, and I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is really nowhere. And we would book shows and fire halls and I'd see Fugazi play in a fire hall and a group of kids would show up and pay $5 and that was plenty and they'd be selling their CDs for $8 and that was plenty for them and they didn't walk out with $15 a piece. They'd walk out with hundreds and hundreds of dollars, which was enough for a night for these guys. These guys Mm -hmm. were, you know, basically Marxists and I said, this doesn't make any sense And so I uh, created this series, Permutations. Initially, this is what it was about. It's still about this to this day. We put on these concerts, and we don't take any money. We book the venue through donations, through our own costs, and every dollar that comes in at the door, or if there are tickets that are sold, goes to the performers directly. So if there's a thousand dollars of ticket sales, it's a thousand dollars that go to the performers. On top of that, we try to get wine or beer donated in New York. We get a lot of uh help from um from some breweries in Red Hook that sell us beer for cans of beer for a quarter, craft beer, that we sell for three bucks at the shows and all of that money goes to these performers and so we've been able to fund recording projects and festivals international festivals and all sorts of different things and yeah the pay-to-play thing sucks the exposure thing sucks there's always people in this line of of uh in the fiduciary line in the line of the money that are just trying to Reach in and grab it as if that the, there's something that they did.
1: Yeah, uh, everyone needs their cut. Their right. cut, even though yeah. there's. I
2: mean, this is why the record industry is is failing now, and mm-hmm. because they they don't know what their purpose is. Um, right. You know, it's um, uh, it's it's nice that things are getting closer and closer to the artists, but there's still people out there who feel like they can get ripped off, and unfortunately, there's artists who feel that. They don't actually need to get paid for what they do,
0: yeah, and I think some of that could be conditioning from this kind of pay to play, you're getting exposure kind of thing well, uh, or... also,
2: yeah, there's that there's there's this weird thing of like a lot of these performers that I'm dealing with who are who are dedicating themselves to some very serious, difficult work mm-hmm. that that they're just completely passionate about the work that they're doing. And they go to school for so long to study
0: this. Right.
2: And, you know, most of them are paying to go to that school. Mm -hmm. And they just feel that the audience should come to them. There's Mm -hmm. a weird sort of entitlement that comes from that. Um, So they don't... so, So, for example, with Permutations, my series, when we're looking for ensembles, it's not only like fantastic musicians and interesting art artistry that we're looking for we're also looking for who's going to actually take this gift that we're giving them Mm -hmm. and benefit from that in a large way so i've dealt with performers who are like oh well because i'll be like oh it doesn't seem like you're there's a lot of people showing up on, on the facebook invite have you called everybody you know in new york have you called your <laughs> aunts and uncles? Have you called your cousins? Right. Have you told them all to show up? If you get five more people at twenty dollars a piece, that's a hundred more dollars in your pocket for your thing. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's it, it's a weird kind of capitalistic thing at the same time that it's this, you know, bootstraps DIY kind of thing too. It's um,
0: which to me seems very American. This kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I wanted to ask you. How do you view the the music industry? You know, you have a lot of experience internationally and in Europe as well. So how does that play out here in Europe? It, to me, it seems like there's better funding, but I'm not in the loop like you are.
2: Absolutely, there's better funding. I mean, it's funny to me, um, the composers I know here in Prague, how much they talk about, oh, how difficult it is and everything like that. But they 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 also give me these anecdotes about like, you know, it's, it's, it's a small community in terms of what we do, right? And so they all see each other. They all know each other. But th- they were all telling me, I've heard this anecdote many times, the time that they see each other every year is at the post office when these grant applications are due. <laughs> and on that day, the last day to send it out, they're all running into each other <laughs> at the post office, sending the stuff out. Because that you know, in the United States, that thing does not exist. We mm-hmm. don't have that thing. I mean, in the current era that we're in, I mean, I don't know. I've never gotten money from the National Endowment of the Arts. I don't know very many people who have. And there's there's a lot of money being taken away in New York. In New York, if you live in New York City, there's New York City specific grants. In in the Midwest, actually, there's a lot of stuff in Minnesota, for example. Really, okay. I, You'd be surprised. Uh, there's other places that there's very specific things. In certain Bay Area of California, has some things. Uh, NIFA, which is New York State, uh, the New York Foundation for the Arts is really fantastic. They're giving money, but there's a, there are all these um, private non-governmental organizations there's very little funding for for that kind of thing uh, through the government though i guess we should uh, flash so right one more I'm time i am here as a guest of the Czech and the american government so i shouldn't complain too much but that's the that's extent state of that, affairs right now that's the extent yeah. of which i've uh, I've uh, gotten money from government sources. For the most part, all of the um, musicians and composers that I'm dealing with, artists that I know here in the Czech Republic, 95, 98% of what they're looking for to fund themselves, to make their career continue, to make a project come to fruition, comes from the Czech government or some sort of EU kind of thing. Um, maybe there's things in Germany, for example, they can apply to right. or, or things that are like cross-cultural Slovak and Czech or something mm-hmm. like that. I don't, the, I, I'm not so well versed in that, but I've certainly received funding from European uh, things uh, too. Um, so I'll be in, uh, in residence in Visby, Sweden, in the uh, beginning of 2021.
0: Oh wow! That's I cool. just have
2: to figure out what to do between now and
0: 2021. <laughs> there you go. That's a good problem to have. That's for sure. So, so Ravi, what are some? What are some of the places um, where you've had your music performed? I know there's many but especially I'd like you to discuss some of the places oh, that wine. absolutely yeah, yeah. some this wine's pretty good. It's not bad. It's um, nice to try. Uh, so some places where you've Bulgarian. also been able, uh, some Bulgarian Muscat for you, Jared. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, new, not something new for the palate, but anyways, um, some, some places where you've also been able to go see your pieces be performed and you've gotten to kind of experience the country and the culture.
2: Um, uh, basically, uh, Germany and France. Um, The Czech Republic has been very kind to me since 2009. Um, There's a fantastic... uh, Actually, he claims... If you know any time you see a biography, it says like parentheses, I don't even know what they write for me. It'll be interesting tomorrow to see uh if they write California or if they write New York City or what they write, but this guy, Peter Kotik, is his name. they write n y c slash Brock. either or. Czech or or they write ostrava
0: uh-huh okay.
2: And he runs this festival that I've been a part of three times called Ostrava Dez. And uh, he's uh, completely an inspiration. This guy, I admire him greatly. And anybody in the Czech new music scene really admires him. Um, he's a composer. He's a flautist. He's a conductor. Um, but he's been putting this festival on since, I believe, 2001. It's a biennial festival called Ostrava Days. I had a piece performed there in 2009. Uh, That was the first time I came to the Czech Republic. And then I had a piece performed and premiered in 2013 that he conducted, uh, that the Janáček Philharmonic performed. And then in 2017, I was writing an orchestra piece for my dissertation at at UC Berkeley, um, and I wanted to have it performed before I defended it. I wanted a recording and I wanted a performance. Very, very strategic move. But... um, I wrote to Peter, and I told him, you know, hey, I have this piece, and can you do it? And he put it on. It was the second-to-last piece at the entire uh, festival, Ostrava Days, and I, I'm so very thankful, and I've learned so much in some of the preeminent world composers there, you know? There's like 35 or 40 young composers like me, And maybe about 15 or so more prominent, well-known composers, like Philip Glass was there. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Probably some other names you wouldn't know, but um, there there are a lot of very, very prominent people. I think Meredith Monk is going to be there in August. (coughs) Is there a cough button?
0: I don't know. You're you're good. Don't worry. You're good. (laughs) Anyways. uh,
2: Yeah, so... What was the question? I was talking about Peter. Uh, yeah, so that, I think, that's why I'm here now. I, was, I went there in 17 and um, befriended a, a couple of um, uh, younger composers. Uh, two of my closest friends that I made there are two guys who live in Prague. And one of them, they both had studied at Hamu, and uh, they said to me, oh, we need to introduce you to this guy, Mikhail Ratai, who's a prominent composer here in in Prague, who teaches at Hamu, and actually was at UC Berkeley on the Fulbright, going the other direction. And so he met me and heard my piece and said, we we should have you here in Hamu. What are you doing? You're finishing your degree. What's your plan? Come spend some time in Europe. And uh I sent my Fulbright. I started the Fulbright application about three days before it was due. <laughs> uh, I had to get that. Bold because move. Because I thought I had thought missed the deadline. I, in fact, I said that to Mikhail. <clears throat> Excuse me. Cough so uh, the way, the way, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have like a, what, you got to have a little button you press over there. Some distracting noise. Jack. I mean, we uh, have plenty of distracting yeah, drops. You know, make it mama sound like... <laughs> mama hoo hoo. Oh, mama hoo hoo. okay. That's I thought you were going to make that's it mandating. sound like I farted or something. Oh, but, that, uh,
0: <laughs> he's got tons of drops. <laughs> uh, a lot yeah, of check I ones. Got, some, I could yeah. do a Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: ah, okay. Well, um, yeah. So basically... Uh, the way the Fulbright works uh, when you're applying as a student scholar, whatever you, um, usually apply through an affiliate university where you're at. Mm -hmm. And, um, like UC Berkeley, I think has a a whole office of like 20 people that are there. It's the Fulbright office to help people get their Fulbrights. I missed that deadline. You apply through them and I missed the entire deadline. And, uh, and, um, Mikhail said, well, why don't you just apply at large? You can just apply on your own. Screw them. Yeah. And uh, I, honestly, uh, I was like, oh, yeah. I smiled when he said that. And I, and, <laughs> and I applied in three days, and I got it. So I was happy about that. Nice.
1: So Chad is uh, an English teacher through Fulbright. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't really know. Like, what is it that is, is sort of your assignment in, in the Fulbright as a composer? That's a
0: great question.
2: Well, I mean, what is your assignment when you're a composer in general? I mean, no, to compose, uh, but <laughs>
1: oh, <laughs> for for who um, and and how and 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 like, what are they looking for from you as a Fulbright composer?
2: For, okay, well, this is uh, again, I have to ask myself who the audience is here on this podcast, and I have to, <laughs> I have to tread lightly. Uh, no, but. Uh, uh, I am basically, I'm a strange um, uh, case because I'm not teaching Mm -hmm. technically. So I've given a few lectures and I have all the facilities at my disposal. There have been musicians who were there. Well, actually the musicians who were there They're not. They perform my works, but through the through Hamu, I've had several pieces performed, not by students there. I wish the students had engaged me, Um, but the composition students have engaged me a little bit, and I've given some lessons. I will be um, sitting on a dissertation committee for one of the graduate students um, at, at the end of this term. Um, so it's, I'm sort of quasi-academic, quasi-artist-in-residence. Yeah, it's not really, it's Sounds it's like kinda, a good life. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. I don't, but uh, I mean, okay, I'm just going to say this, frankly. I mean, I, <laughs> I know I, the ETAs, like Chad, yep. they have to wake up in the morning and go to a job. Mm-hmm. right they got that they're getting paid a salary almost basically um <clears throat> for some of the scholars they are affiliated with um institutions where they're teaching so then they kind of have a job but when you're in a professor and you're in higher education i mean geez my I mean, my father's a retired professor and when he was working a tough schedule maybe he taught 12 hours a week, right? So that's like nothing.
0: Yeah, it's not super demanding.
2: It's ne- it's never demanding, but then there's the rest of us, and then there are those who are not teaching, and basically you're conducting your own research, which is technically what I'm doing. That's mm-hmm. sort of the, the umbrella I fall under. Right. My, uh, my artistic work is my research. But basically, yeah. I, I make my own schedule. I've been... I Since, especially since I moved to this place in Nusla, I've been... I have more space, and I'm doing a lot of work here. Um, if they need me at Hamu, I'll go. But uh, really, uh, there's no uh, real demand for me. But, but see, this is the thing, you know? The, the fact that I got here means that I'm trying to get work done. You know, right. But they that that that's that's the, sele- the selection process I guess <laughs> um, yeah but you know I'm certainly having my fun too
0: <laughs> but but yeah you've gotten a, a definitely a lot of performances of your pieces um, are you currently working on any new pieces or uh, yeah I, ha- I have
2: been and I that's one of the things that sort of I guess if there's something I'm not Super thrilled about is, I'm. I've been. Uh, I kind of came here wanting to work on this big opera project, and that is one of these. It's the largest thing I've ever done, and there's so many steps to it. And I've kind of gotten places and then gone back to the drawing board and rethought things. But I mean, I think the material that I've generated is always something that I can come back to, and that's something mm-hmm. that's very, um, very important to me in the creative process. Um, but since then, you know, as I've connected here, I'm I'm I've been working on sketches for a, um, a string quartet process with a fantastic string quartet here called uh, the Fama Quartet, and. Um, yeah, I'd uh, I'd like to work with more of the instrumentalists here, um, and and it's funny sometimes these the process just changes. So like, uh, as I was sketching some things for this quartet, I started coming up with some harmonies, and I almost kind of wrote the beginning of a a piano piece, right? Oh, cool. This thing just kind of came out of it, and and I have a a dear friend of mine who is. Uh, a co-curator of permutations actually um he was a fantastic pianist who i've written a piece for before and uh, i know i mean he'd be thrilled i'd if, if i finish this just to surprise him with it i hope he's not
0: listening uh, <laughs> that would be that would be a nice surprise is that doctor is that dr larson larson yes yeah. indeed a fellow midwesterner Ufta. Okay. There you go. I tried to do a little bit of homework before this because ah. I've known Ravi you know, as a, as a friend, but it's, it's different when you just hang out with someone and you talk versus really knowing someone's accomplishments and their connections and things. But one mm-hmm. thing that struck me from the get-go when I met Ravi was just his ability to uh, make friends, meet people. And it seems like everywhere I go with Ravi in Prague, he knows everybody. So, how, how do you actually do that?
2: No, that's because I take you to the places where I know people. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> Trying true.
0: To flex okay, on you a little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean,
1: uh,
2: hey, man. I mean, look, I don't want to get too dark, no pun intended here, but like, the uh, there is an aspect of the, you know, Prague in the Czech Republic is a very homogeneous society, and there are certain places where I walk in, and it's like you know, the record scratches, and uh, you know, I, I, everybody's taking a look at me. Who's this guy? Right. Um, so once I find the places I'm very comfortable in, especially here in Prague, I, I like to frequent them.
1: Sure. And Wet. and
2: yeah. Sorry. No, go
1: ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: So I mean. <clears throat> it just so happens that those places tend to be places with really good food and drink and and uh, I enjoy those places and uh, and I've developed genuine friendships out of that so oh yeah. absolutely yeah so um yeah i don't know that you've met too many of my musician friends not yet hopefully okay. tom- hopefully tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow night tomorrow you will for sure for sure and and they're great and it, it's funny because I You know, some of them are proggers for life, and I'm taking them to new
0: places. Right. I believe that. Yeah, I believe that. They, they, uh, Good old Prajacs <laughs> Exactly.
1: <laughs> but, I mean, you clearly, Chad, I think Chad's right in that you clearly do have some sort of skill. I mean, you've started the permutations where you had to get, you know, connections with these alcohol companies or food companies and, and book get, uh, book performers. And you also have your connection with your wine people in California. And all of that is sort of the same muscle you're you're working a little bit. You gotta you gotta charm people. You gotta meet a lot of people. That I'm terrible at. And so uh, yeah. Yeah. that really?
2: I, I, that surprises oh, me, man. <laughs> you you should <laughs> yeah, see no. you
0: should see when we take Jared out to most social events. Jared is a great guy once you get to know him, but you gotta break down those walls a little bit. And well, I have uh, I just met him. I know. Yeah, it's, but you I he's mean, he's different on the podcast. It's a different environment. That's yeah, you're for sure. in our territory now. I'm. 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 Right. <laughs> I'm comfortable right. here. Yeah, you're yeah. In Jared's neck of the woods right now. That's okay, for sure. That's
2: right. I'm in your closet there with the <laughs> hot water boiler.
0: That's right. Harry Potter, Harry Potter <laughs> closet. That's right. But see, um, I do think there is some truth though to you being quite the conversationalist, and I think some of that may have to do with you're a very intelligent guy. Um, I think you, you, you've seen a lot of really cool movies, you know your music, you know your food and your drink. I mean, I've, you know I, I don't mean to fanboy out too hard on you here, Ravi, but I've never really had a boring conversation with you. Ah,
2: well, let's talk music theory at some point.
0: Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> but see, I won't find that boring, me as someone who enjoys music. I'm sure Jared will I'll enjoy find it, it immensely boring. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. So I, I have a little music question for you. So Jared uh-huh. Jared and I have started um, just for, we kind of talked about this before we recorded, but we've kind of started for shits and giggles, for lack of a better term, started kind of what we call just a little so jam track. So
2: we can curse on this podcast. Oh, yeah. You can, oh, yeah, you okay. can say whatever you want.
0: We have the e-parental advisory, so. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, good. Yes. Um, but anyway, so we do these, these jam tracks, right? So usually what I do is I record, we tried to just jam, but because you know, I'm here in Europe and he's in the States with the lag and trying to get it so we can play, hear our instruments through our audio interfaces and everything. We don't have special software. What I did is I recorded the drum track. Well, I put the drum track in GarageBand, recorded a very, very basic chord progression, sent it Jared's way. Jared played piano over top of it, sent it back. You know, and we kind of talked about it. Do you have any tips as a a musician and as a composer for Jared and I, what we should be looking for and how we can kind of make these little jam tracks, you know, exciting, good to listen to? I know it's a loaded question, but you're a good guy (laughs) to ask this.
2: Well, I mean, embrace the technology that's there. I mean, just like there's so much... I mean, I we haven't. I don't know if you knew this or we haven't really spoken about this, but I, I did electronic music for a long time. I was very involved in the the rave scene, and I was a DJ in New York for a while. <clears throat> once you um, once you get uh, audio that's yours, it's original. Start sampling it. I mean, start messing around with it. Start editing it. Start looping things. Start cutting things up, and. Um, you know, don't feel like like this isn't the day. I mean, in the old days, and I was one of these guys, and I'm going to show my age, but in the 90s, you know, I had a, a, a four track recorder and I would do a lot of four tracking stuff. And there were people I know who would do their four track recordings and send the tape or pass it off to a friend, I would overdub something or whatever in these days it's so much easier to do something don't just overdub at some point start thinking about oh wait can I cut this into something can I this is this is the thing that the recorded sound medium just like film think about things in terms of film this is a um, perspective I've been taking a lot in terms of my composition in the last few years I'm starting to think about myself more as like a director than a composer.
0: Interesting. <clears throat>
2: um, but the, the, the advantage and the, the amazing thing about the film medium versus uh, a play or drama in general is that you can play with time. Um, you, you essentially can cut things up, juxtapose them in different ways. Uh, time is what you're essentially your medium. And when you have recorded sound, that's what you're doing as well. Um, so you can take bits that are good and keep dropping them in. You can have bits that you really like and play them, play your little fart noises when you're uh, coughing. <laughs> <and calling. laughs> you Many can, <laughs> uh, Exactly. You can do that and uh, get, you know, do something uh that maybe is out of the ordinary and you know, is going to surprise you
1: you know what i that's a great uh tip and something that i just considered so we have a sound that we call the untranslatable owl and it's sort of like our theme almost and i don't know why we didn't well, play, consider play it real quick chad at his chad's mom is a big fan of cuckoo clocks and when we first started this podcast he was at his home in michigan and this, this noise would always, and every time we record, it would always interrupt. And so I, I got him to uh, stick a microphone up to a cl- the clock one time and record it. So we, and we use that. And, it sounds uh,
2: like it's underwater.
0: Play it, it again. It? Yeah. yeah, it does sound a little... Yeah. yeah, he's right. Oh, I see what you're saying. I yeah. see what you're saying. Yeah. And I used this mic right here to record mm-hmm. it. I don't know why it came out that way, but yeah.
2: I'm but, sorry. Uh, keep going. Yeah. No,
1: that's a that's just a that's a great recommendation. I'm I'm a, a, a novice piano player. I've been playing for about three years now, and I, I'm I'm still in. Uh, I'm the jamming part is new to me. You know, I've been playing pieces and reading music and all that stuff. And I've been trying my, to get him to jam. Yeah, my biggest struggle right now is really just getting out of my shell and getting out of my head when it comes to it. Because, you know, I, like, especially with Chad, who's been doing this for forever. And so I'm, a, I'm always a little embarrassed to send him something where it's like, I mean, he's, he's going to think this is dumb because <laughs> it, it's all dumb to me. But it's, everything it's, that it's actually
0: been pretty good. He's, he, see, Jared's very critical of himself. And the thing with creating music, I mean, yes, you can obviously create very horrible music, but y- y- if you're too critical, I think you block yourself a little bit. Right? You have to play and experiment and find out what you like, what you don't like. And so I'm trying to get Jared to be just, you know, I send him the chords and say, all right, here's the chords. Just play around with it until you figure out what you like.
2: Well, I, I mean, I think what you said, Jared, about, you know, oh, this is dumb. Is that what you said? Yeah. 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 I meant well, my I, part, I, not not the yeah, jamming. Yeah, your part. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. no, no. no your <laughs> part is dumb. So I think embrace that. There's, if you're saying it's dumb, my initial th- reaction is that it's something that's very personally reflective of you mm-hmm. and maybe incisive about something about yourself that you don't like. And maybe, it, I'm, oh, and I'm geez. talking about in terms of your playing, <laughs> right? Yeah, I gotta so talk to my therapist real quick. <laughs> well, it, it, it is. It's like that. It's like that. It's a bit uh, yeah, music. I mean, uh, it's you, you, uh, you. But but the best part is that the more you, you, I mean, to really get in there and analyze. Well, why is that dumb? Why is it? I don't like that. Um, I had a professor at Berkeley who did who had a taught a class of undergraduates. One of his assignments was. Um, I want you all to come in and bring in a piece of music that you hate. Mm. And they all came in and they would play this music and every single one of them, he'd ask them, why do you hate this? And there was never anything that was specific about the actual musical quality. A lot right. of them would say, "Oh, this is country music. I don't like the the uh, you know the stuff they're talking about. It's just a stupid song. Mm-hmm. It's like it's becomes because let's remember, music is something that we appreciate because it's something ingrained in us. And there's a societal element to this. It's the society that you're born into, right? You know, that's why you." like the things that you like uh i mean i'm sure there's stuff beyond that right but like look if you were if you were born uh you know 70 years ago in india you wouldn't be listening to jimi hendrix Mm -hmm. i mean you'd be one of the few rare people if that was the case right? right uh so the, these uh, – okay, well, that's before Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just saying, like, you know <laughs> – I go to say Yeah, you wouldn't – your taste is going to be very different mm-hmm. if you, uh, you know, lived in uh, – uh, it's quite incredible when you think about things. Like, there's, there's – there are um, – I don't know what the politically correct word is now, but the, uh, there are Aboriginal people, Indigenous peoples in um, – Australia, okay, they're the only people in the world that we know that don't have the fifth in their singing really? scale. Yes. Oh, wow. So, and in fact, there are people there that don't have octave equivalents. Are you following me with the octave equivalents? Shall I explain? Explain it to our okay. listeners.
0: Because he understands. I get you. I'm sure Jared gets you. Smooth, so, <laughs> so if I'm singing,
2: you know, if we're, we're at a party and we sing happy birthday to you, I would sing that and the girls would be happy birthday to yeah, An octave to, higher. An octave mm-hmm. higher, right? No. In this tribe, it would be like happy birthday to you. And then someone else would be like happy birthday <laughs> to you. Like it doesn't. And, the, and to them, this is like a different, I mean, this is harmony and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is stuff I've heard is is gorgeous, I and mean, uh, And maybe you know, maybe there's some. I don't want to get into it, but maybe there's some exoticism as to why I like it or whatever. But there's something there is an aesthetic beauty there that's valued to them. We're conditioned to think these things, but of course, what you're ultimately trying to do is express your own aesthetic viewpoint what it is that you uniquely can do and no one else can and mm-hmm. there is such a thing and that's that's your artistry and the, yeah and, the, and then what's left is just developing the craft in order to facilitate that
1: yeah yeah i think i think that's that's a big struggle too is maybe dumb i mean uh, dumb is not that i didn't mean that but i think that might be an oversimplification i think yeah. maybe more of what it is is that i feel like A lot of my melodies are simplistic, and I I don't know how... And, you know, it's just because as someone that enjoys music, uh, it's it's hard for me to listen to my own stuff and be like, oh, this is good in comparison to, like, the professionals I listen to.
2: Well, this is great. I think you've already... Like, the fact that you have gone from just basically making a broad general and negative comment towards mm-hmm. your creative stuff you've actually come up with a critique now where you're saying i think these melodies are simplistic Do you, if you want to complexify these melodies there's all sorts of ways there's people who there there are um you know there are techniques for that that date back uh, um thousands and thousands of years I mean, if you want to read stuff in the English language, then yes, you can go back a few hundred years. But yes, this is what, you know, counterpoint and all these things that the Western systems of uh, composition that came out of Europe, uh, four or 500 years ago is maybe not that long, but, uh, you know, even dating back to a guy like Palestrina, uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways that you can follow up on this and just, I mean, uh, you know, do yeah. the work.
1: Yeah, and <laughs> we're still we're still early into it though. So yeah. like I, I mean, also we've, we've I created I, I do one try to, jam track so far. Practice. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. There's a there's a lot of the, that happening. The, sure. the other
0: thing that I wanted to mention too, though, is we are usually unless you're one of these very cocky, arrogant people, I would say we're usually our harshest critics as well, for the most part. Good. Right.
2: But uh, you know, always step outside of the box. I I don't know. Um. You know, one thing I would say also, you know, sometimes you just, I think with a lot of creative people, you're just doing the same thing. You're just banging your head against the wall and doing the exact same thing, trying to, and, and you get stuck in ruts. And um, Brian Eno put out this thing, uh, geez, wow, over 20-plus years ago now. It was a deck of cards called the Oblique Strategies. And there was a guy who, um, uh created a thing on the internet that randomizes it basically it was a deck of cards that you'd pull out and there would be some sort of aphorism or something that was a suggestion of like you know i don't know you pull something out and it'll say like play all the notes you didn't want to play or something you know i'm I'm, that's a terrible version of it but they're they're much more some of them are much more inspiring than that and you know stuff like that just shake it up you Mm -hmm. know shake it up and take risks there's no reason to fear failure i mean you you seem to be
1: very good at that too you know i i've i've read a lot about you online and stuff and a lot of it Uh always seems to mention that you're 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 uh out of the box and trying new things and you're you're experimenting a lot what what is like where where did you how did you get to that for oh let me start with this chad and i recently we did an episode that was on our um our, sort of our, our how we got into music and what, what instruments we played and how we chose them and, and what they sort of mean to us and why we like the instruments we play. Can we get a little background on how you even started the whole, how you got into music to begin with? Were you in band in elementary school, middle school, playing a clarinet well, or something? This,
2: uh, yeah, this is, uh, well, it's a very long story, but I, I, I'll... Uh, we have time. <laughs> Let me pour some more wine (laughs) Um, So, you know, okay So I'm um, the youngest of of two children And uh, my parents uh, My father was born in Malaysia And he came to India um, After World War II And uh, my mother was born and raised in India So I'm I'm first generation American Mm -hmm. And now they have this phrase called Tiger mom, right? I'm sure you guys right. have heard this oh, phrase yeah, before. Oh,
1: yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm.
2: I, uh, my mother was definitely a tiger mom. I mean, yeah. on so many levels. Um, so, I don't know. My father is a mathematician. He never tr- was trained in music. the first musical lesson, I'm very proud to say this about him, his first music lesson he ever took was at the age of 68, Oh, that's great! And but he's always been a music guy. He, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, an early memory for me is my brother, who's four years older than me. Uh, they got a piano for him to learn. They wanted him to learn piano, and when the piano got delivered, my father sat down immediately. I'd never seen a piano in my house. Never seen my father play piano. He sat down. He started playing some stuff. Never, you know, and and he turned to me and he said, "Hey, let's write a song, kids."
0: Oh cool. That's awesome. And
2: I and my brother was like, "What?" Huh? Like I'm like, "Okay, let's write a song." And I I, I still remember that. And um you know, my fa- I'm not saying my father's a great pianist, but he played he played by ear and he was very interested in Carnatic music. Again, this is this cultural programming kind of thing. This is what he grew up in. He mm-hmm. uh uh does was not neither of my parents are are literate or skilled in the western canon of music um so uh that was just a freeing moment for me right there and i remember that this was before at that point i must have been like three or four years old oh wow okay yeah and my, cause my brother, this is when I, yeah, this, I still lived in Delaware actually. And my, uh, my brother was just starting, but I have this vivid memory of that. Um, and I wasn't playing anything. I, and I don't think I was allowed to touch the piano and, um, there was this TV show that came on like a year or so later about the Suzuki method. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Suzuki method.
0: Isn't that training by ear? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. There was,
2: there's, was this Japanese guy, Dr. Suzuki, whose basic idea was that children could learn to play an instrument in the same way that they learn a language and that they're these sponges when they're children and you should teach them to learn by ear. Mm -hmm. before they learn to read they can start to learn to play an instrument and my parents saw there was a show in the 80s you guys are too young to know it called real people and there was this whole thing about that and my parents saw that and they were like they came to me and this was also at the the early stages of mtv and um my parents came to me and and, by the way, the early stages of MTV doesn't mean I had MTV in my house. My parents would never have MTV in my house. But <laughs> when when we would go to other people's houses, like, that was the thing. It would be like, oh, shit, they got MTV. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. Put it on. You know, this is like, you know. It's exciting. We didn't have cable TV and stuff. It would be like there were, like, seven channels on. Okay, right. wait, she's got cable. Oh, she's got MTV. Holy <laughs> crap, there's Billy Idol. There's, look, there's oh, Michael Jackson. And so I remember two two things I remember from early days of MTV. I remember Michael Jackson beat it with that Eddie Van Halen guitar solo. Yep. And I remember um, also Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes and the guitar solo in that. I don't know if you guys remember that song. I might have yes, to listen to owner it. Owner of Ellone lonely Heart. And and there's he uses a crazy um, harmonizer, Trevor Rabin, the guitar oh, cool. okay. on it. And and they do this and it was this image juxtaposed, like it's this weird kind of dystopian society and stuff, and there's like this factory, and there's like a, a as he goes into the, the guitar solo, he's got this crazy harmonizer on and there's like a image of this like glowing buzzsaw cutting through metal. And I was oh, just weird. like, okay. and I heard that and I heard beat it. And I, and I was like, what? They're plucking strings. I mean, these things sound like laser beams to me. Right. These sound <laughs> right. like, this is like star Wars or something. Like, and I was just like, this is crazy. How does that happen? And even at that age. And so my mother, after this TV show comes to me, she says, Oh, Ravi, do you, uh, would you like to learn to play the violin? And I said, no i i'd I'd like to learn to play the guitar right and she says, "Well, we don't know anybody who can teach you that um but we we could start you on the violin and um if you're any good, we'll switch you over to the guitar does it
1: work like that is that is it transferable like that
2: No, but I okay. mean certainly learning any instrument is Great. right and, yeah That's yeah, certainly for sure. left hand fingering there there's some things mm-hmm. uh, um, okay maybe um some minor transferable skills m- at yeah, most yeah i mean yeah maybe it's a scale length of the th- th- this could be a very long discussion so anyways <laughs> so uh i uh i had this tiger mom who you know look when you're four or five years old and you're going to a lesson you can't take your own notes and you know you can't your mother goes there with you right and so she would sit there with me and she would practice with me and all that stuff now the crazy part i said how musical my father is and uh, my mother is probably the least musical person i've ever met in my life <laughs> and it's very strange but she would go with me and take notes but she was very you know Call me in. I'd be outside playing with my friend Ravi. You need to come in. You have to. You haven't practiced. You need to practice your violin. I'd come in. I'd be practicing and doing whatever. And uh, so every year on my birthday, I would ask. I'd say, Hey, uh, hey, can I get a guitar for my birthday? Uh, you, you're not practicing your violin enough. It's, <laughs> no, you're. You're really. You're not doing a good job. You could be doing so much better. And uh, so I would uh, ask every year and uh, finally I, I got to be like 11 or 12 and I uh, I was, was a kid on my soccer team who got an electric guitar and I had gotten into rock and roll at that point for a couple of years. I was probably in seventh grade or something like that and I'd been into rock and roll for a couple of years, and I went over, and I remember I was really into The Who, I'm still into my favorite band of all time, and uh, I was really into Quadrophenia, my favorite album of all time, and there was this one part in Quadrophenia, this melody, that I just went and I picked up his guitar and I figured it out, and he was like, shit, man, you're pretty good, like, you know, and so, like, I figured out, oh, I can teach myself some of these things, And um, so uh, I was delivering newspapers. And I realized my parents weren't going to buy me a guitar, so I bought myself one. And I actually started playing in a band before that. I was playing my friend's brother's guitar in a band. And uh, his brother taught me uh, a lot of the initial stuff. And then I taught myself, and then I got really obsessive about it. That was like Shredder-era 90s. So I was really, you know, by the time I was 14 or 15, I was really into Stevie Vai and Satriani, Eric Johnson, all the crazy mm-hmm. Mike Varney, if you know his label, yeah, 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 yeah. all those guys. Mm-hmm. Richie Kotzen was mm-hmm. from my town. So like I saw all these crazy, shredded, nutty guys that were superhuman that had much bigger hands than me. And uh, somehow I, uh, I was teaching myself a lot of that stuff. And, how, did, uh,
1: how did your mom feel about you being in a band and playing the guitar in spite well, of, you they know? hated it. They yeah. hated it. <laughs> by the
2: time I was like 11 or 12, they kind of, they saw that I was rebellious enough that they just, uh, they didn't know what to do. They were, they had concern, but they didn't, they, you know, they weren't. Uh, capable of handling me. I mean, I was going, I mean, I saw, I saw so many, like, you know, but one of the great things about the crappy place that I grew up in is um, we had all these, there was a club in town called the Chameleon Club, it still exists. And on Sundays they would do all ages shows. And so I saw, I saw so many hardcore bands, Back in you know the early '90s, which turned me on to like sub pop records, and you know I saw Nirvana several times. I saw so many bands before they became anything. I remember seeing the Jesus Lizard. I saw a lot of the Discord bands, uh, which you know. As a kid, basically, especially where I grew up, it was classic rock radio. I was into Zeppelin. Well, actually, you know, actually, very telling thing about me and rock and roll. First two cassettes, rock and roll cassettes I bought were Led Zeppelin Four mm-hmm. and the Dead Kennedys' Frank and Christ. And that probably sums up my taste in rock and roll for, you know, my eternity. I, you know, it's... Two disparate things that uh, I kind of connected in a certain way, so
1: um, when did you uh, you studied music in college?
2: no, my undergraduate degree is in philosophy actually okay. and uh, I how- but I was heavily heavily involved in the music scene the electronic music scene in Baltimore, and I was doing a lot of this kind of uh, before it became really big, this kind of home recording projects and doing a lot of lo fi stuff. I mean, I guess Mm -hmm. it was at the same time as like pavement and Sebado and guided by voices. Who's probably my second favorite band of all time. But, um, yeah, so I was doing a lot of that stuff, but my things were more influenced by electronic music that I was seeing at the time and doing things that were more experimental, looping my guitars. Um, so, uh, if you know the what? guitar player Roger Miller, I was really influenced by I'm that. I'm sure Chad does. I Actually, know. no. No. Not okay. So, um, uh, or like Mission of Burma and stuff like that. Okay, like, I've, so I was I've doing some. Some some stuff where I was just rudimentary, kind of looping textures and sounds, kind of like Frippertronics, Brian Eno kind of stuff. Um,
1: At that point, had you already considered or thought or knew that music was going to be your career or part of your career? I'm always confused. Well, and- I,
2: knew, I knew it was my life, mm-hmm. but I was brainwashed into thinking that it would never be a thing that I would do. So like, uh, you need to get a good job. Here's I'm a crazy, sure tr- here's a crazy story. Right. Um, not, you know, just a month ago, less than a month ago, this month was the, um, anniversary of the, the Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain suicide. Mm-hmm. And, um, Nirvana was a big thing for me at that time. And, uh, Kurt, Uh, That happened actually when I was, after I had applied to colleges and um, I received a, I was a Z rock scholar. It was something like one of my teachers put my hat in the, my name in the hat for, and I got it, which meant I could apply to the university of Rochester for free. And my teacher in his smartness knew that Eastman school of music was at, University of Rochester. One of the great school. One of the best one of the best music schools in the United States. And uh, so I ended up uh, they were flying me there and all this stuff and I applied to school to be an engineer. That's what my parents kind of pushed me towards and I thought actually I was I was down with it I thought it was a way to bridge my creativity and my science and mathematical background. I wanted mm-hmm. to do things like signal processing and deal with you know with all that four tracking experiments and doing all these crazy electronic sounds and recordings that was interesting to me mm-hmm. um, so I was going to be flown up to the University of Rochester to visit. And I was staying with my brother, and my brother was at Princeton at the time, and I was staying with him on the Friday, and I was going to fly out in in, uh, uh, New York to go to Rochester. And uh, I got a phone call from my friend, you know, this is before social media and all that stuff, and he said, (laughs) hey, uh," you know, I was like 16 years old at the time, he says, hey, you heard about Kurt. I was like, what? What happened? And he's like, turn on like MTV or whatever. And they did this coverage of it. And I was I was freaked out. I mean, I saw the guy play like four or five months before that. And um at that that night, I had wanted to stay in Princeton because in the Trenton City Gardens, which is a legendary rock club, no longer exists. In Trenton, New Jersey. And I don't know if you guys have ever been to Trenton, New Jersey. Well, you're yeah. in Philly. Yeah, yeah. You, I've you. been to
1: Princeton. Uh, yeah. And I've been- No, no, it, not no, Princeton. Is that around where Rutgers is?
2: What? What? Isn't
1: that a where I've been- Oh, I've been to the airport. That's why I've been
2: there. <laughs> no, no. Trenton, New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I'm a saying- crappy, uh, crappy town. Yeah. I've it been to the airport. Vi- that's the
1: only thing I know about okay, Trenton. So
2: Trenton is terrible. And Mm -hmm. it was worse back then. And so I went that night. The band that I was really into at the time was the Afghan Wigs. I don't know if you guys know that band. They were on Sub Pop Records. They were friendly with all the Seattle scene. They were from Ohio, from Cleveland, Ohio. No, Cincinnati, Ohio, excuse me. And um, I just was so into that record. And they were on Sub Pop. And I just wanted to go to that show. And I said, fuck it. And I didn't go to fly up to uh, Rochester. And I went to this freaking show. And I remember walking in. My brother, I had to buy a ticket in the last minute, so I had to walk in. My brother had his ticket, to will call, and his buddy. They were all over 21. I was like 16. But I had a beard. And mm. this was Trenton. And I had dark <laughs> skin. And so I walk right in. Guy doesn't card me. I sit down at this horseshoe bar. It's in, uh, well, it was in a horseshoe bar. It was just rectangular, but it's a big rectangular bar right when you walk into Trenton City Gardens, and the stage is to your right. There's no backstage. All the performers walk from the front. I sit down. Do you guys know the Afghan wigs, by the way? No? Okay, well, no. I'll tell the rest of the story, anyways. Uh, the lead singer of the Afghan, well, I sit down at the bar. And I'm kind of thinking about Kurt and all this stuff, and, and uh, you know, I'm also like, hey, I'm 16 years old, and I'm freaking, I just walked right into this bar in Trenton, right? and I sit down at the bar, the guy's like, what do you want? And I'm like, I'll have a shot of Maker's Mark. <laughs> Brings me a shot of Maker's Mark. The guy to the right of me goes, hey, good choice. He's got the same thing. He cheerses me. And I'm like, oh, shit, that's Greg Dooley.
0: The lead singer. singer. Yeah, okay.
2: And he cheers me. I'm like, you're Greg. And he's like, yep. And he's like, I'd love to talk, but I got to go play. <laughs> so, like Priority. I said, there's no, there's no backstage. Right. So I'm like, well, I'm going to go see the show. And I just walk right behind him all the way up to the front of the stage.
0: Oh, sweet.
2: And I saw them and they played like their whole album. They were like, and they knew what had happened. At some point there was some drunk fuck in the crowd is just yelling out, play one for Kurt, you know, play one for Kurt. <laughs> she just kept yelling it out. And the, and Greg and those guys, I mean, shit, you should look them up. And the, they were touring on I'm the general. I'm sure gentle-
0: Jared is as,
1: we're, as we're talking. No, I'm looking at pictures of the Trenton City Gardens. It looks like a real uh, piece of crap.
2: Yeah, it was a real piece of crap. <laughs> no longer exists, but a legendary place. There's, there's a great book that was kind of done in the Please Kill Me, if you know that book, uh, style of writing, um, or Meet Me in the Bathroom, if you know that book. Uh, they, anyways, just a great book that was done all about all the legendary shows, and they actually talk about that night in that book, and um, Greg, like basically those guys, I mean they were rough. They they a major label tried to sign them before they got signed to Sub Pop, and they basically the guy took him out to dinner, the A&R guy. And, and he ended up like beat up and bloodied in like an alleyway. (laughs) Like after like, uh, you know, those those guys, I mean, they weren't that rough, but they were just, they were assholes and they partied hard. And, uh, so anyways, they did their album gentlemen, which by the way, you guys should listen to like immediately. And, um, it, uh, Greg responded and was just like, Hey, to this guy, who's just like, look, that's a friend of ours. Like, we know the guy. Like, we're really sad, and we're thinking about that little girl that doesn't have a dad anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they went into a song, and um, anyways, it was, it was an incredible show, and I have no regret of not going to Rochester. Where that's correct. It, it would have been really cold even in April.
1: <laughs> yeah Us being from Michigan We understand We understand that very much Oh, definitely well, yeah
0: well, well, Ravi One thing that we love to do here At the Untranslatable Podcast Is We have a Song of the Pod And we We uh, Try to feature You know Have it relevant to the episode And obviously having a composer There were a lot of choices Of Really This episode is more of a piece of the pod I would say Than mm. a Song of the Pod And I didn't wanna choose it because we're we're friends and I've heard you talk about a lot of your pieces and I thought I might be a little biased. So I had Jared do the heavy lifting on this one Oh, and I didn't uh, know. I just I just recommended a piece. I didn't realize you weren't going <laughs> to
1: recommend anything. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I was I was waiting for for your recommendation. And so okay. uh so Worked Jared, tell tell us about your choice, why you chose it and and we would love to hear your own opinion, you know, as the creator of the piece.
2: Can, can't can we just play an Afghan Wig song from Gentlemen at this point? Uh, <laughs> uh I mean, unfortunately, we can, we could
0: feature that as well. We, we can't can play that. but we can't play other people's oh, music.
2: Oh, because of oh, copyright. Yeah, uh, that
1: fun
0: stuff. Yeah.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Well, but I do have them up copyright. here, and I am going to listen to it uh, well, after we're,
0: we're, it we off. But see, that's the way the song of the pod works, is we discuss the song, ah, mm-hmm. okay. and then we have a YouTube channel where we post things, ah. and we post on our Twitter as well. Yes.
2: Okay, great.
0: So we, sh- we share the media, but we don't do any copyright infringement, so to say, I guess. Right, mm-hmm. right. So Jared, go ahead and tell wait, us what you're... Wait,
2: your, so yeah? I'm sorry if I'm...
0: No, you're fine. Right? No, go I'm, ahead, I'm, I'm, go Okay.
2: Ahead. So then what's that little snippet of music at the beginning?
0: We wrote it. I wrote yeah, it. That's Chad. Oh, uh, that's Chad. Chad not that. Fancy, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I wrote it. That's Chad. Okay. Yeah. So
2: you give, you. Are, you, a you need five. to get some royalties from that, buddy. Are you Are you doing that mean little bass lick? That ding? no, no, that was a
0: friend. Oh, that's of ours. my.
1: That's our buddy Chris. I, I yeah. we
0: sent it to him and asked him to to put that in underneath. Yeah, I, I played with him in a band in college actually, and yeah. so because I, I wrote it at the time and uh, I was still in the states and I have a crappy bass guitar, but it always sounded okay. But I just, I basically did the guitar part and the drums, and and I was like, well, it's only a little intro, and then Jared was like, no, it's missing bass, so props to you, Jared, and he sent it over to our friend Chris, so shout out to our buddy Chris Blaker um, Mm -hmm. for adding that spicy little bass line on top of there, Um, but yeah.
2: Well, if you guys need some royalty-free music, I'm happy to give you some, too,
0: by the way. Oh, sweet. I got some yeah.
2: electronic stuff and you can drop in at any time. But, I mean, I didn't want to step on your toes. No, here, you're buddy. good. No, <laughs> we, we always try to add music
1: where
0: we can and when we can.
1: We're actually, in the part of this jam session that we've been doing, too, is is so we can, uh, I think we're partially trying to work on a new theme song. We want it to be something that involves both of us and that has a little bit more, no offense to Chad, a little bit more like a... Thought and collaboration behind it rather than just oh, like let's put something down for the beginning of, the, of yeah. the so that's
0: that's part of this whole jam session thing we're trying to do here so as well.
2: You weren't thinking at all when you did that.
0: I basically, <laughs> I basically was like, Well, what does it what does intro music sound like? and that was my stab. <laughs> at, was the first time I had ever it was written like your intro version music.
2: of the Daily Show intro,
0: exactly. Exactly, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Good, comparison. you know,
2: you know, who did the Daily Show intro?
0: Uh uh-uh. uh, Bob Mold. Really? Come on, man. Really? Mid- okay.
2: Midwesterners should know okay. nice. Come on. Interesting. I know it's Minnesota, but still. It's like, Minnesota. Minnesota. <laughs>
1: Shout Oof-ta. out to our Midwest neighbors. That's right.
0: Anyways, uh, back to our, our piece oh, yeah. of the pod for this episode. So what did uh, you I choose, checked,
1: Jared? Uh, I checked out your SoundCloud, and I was listening to uh, a lot of the stuff. And the one that really caught my attention was Shelter from uh, Ah from, yes, from 2014. I, liked, I, I like it because... Um, I, well, I I always get nervous talking about music with, especially with the person that made it.
2: <laughs> oh no, please don't. But uh, <laughs> say but what I, you will.
1: I enjoyed it very much because I enjoyed the it had a like the um it built in layers, you know, I, I like that it was uh the aspect of of the slow build to it and and uh, and, and it was almost built it, it it built tension that it almost it almost felt like the tension was reaching a point of like um like a too much, and then another layer would come in and kind of alleviate some of that tension. And um, what I also liked at the very end is it kind of, it also kind of left at the end with a little bit of tension too. Like it I didn't resolve as much as I was expecting to. But then I, I at first, it, it, not that it even, I was saying it's it, a tease. Wanna, <laughs> yeah, it is kind of a tease. I don't want to say yeah. it made me mad, but I'm like, oh, oh man. He, like almost like you got me. <laughs> right. And yeah. I, oh, good. I, I, you I got enjoyed it very much. Um, where where was um what where how did you come up with that what was the uh, where did
0: that so, come from
2: so so you didn't I'm I'm just curious you didn't read any of, like the notes on it or any of that
0: stuff you just I listened didn't to notice. it then oh, no, no, even no, notice. Great, great great where where are the notes at are no, they on no, your no, website I mean, or they're,
2: yeah there and a friend of mine who played on it wrote an article about it and uh, anyway the, okay oh I I think I might have seen that actually know that thing about it okay so the piece was actually written for two trios that do this new music thing, that are consummate new musicians. They can read all the. Actually, the funny thing is the one trio is three Eastman kids. It's a percussion, oh, tri- a percussion okay. trio called Teague, T-I-G-U-E, and I think they just put out a new record, and they are fantastic. Put them on your listening list. T-I-G-U-E, Teague. They did a concert a few months ago with Deer Hoof, if you know that band... You don't know Deerhoof? Oh, you should. That's all right. Uh, uh, Anyways, so they're they're, they're definitely fantastic musicians doing great stuff. Um, Anyways, I saw them play, actually, um, and I'd known them all, but I saw them play as well as this other trio, Concert Black, who were also friends of mine, who I'd seen play before, but I saw both trios play separate sets at a festival in Madison, Wisconsin that I'd been going to. And this is this time when I had started this idea of like wanting to work with musicians and bringing out their own capabilities and their own voices and playing to them. So the interesting thing about both of these trios, and and I didn't say the name of the other one, it's called, the other trio is called Concert Black. So the one trio is percussionists, three percussionists called Teague. Concert Black is a trio of a flautist, a bassist, and a percussionist. Um, uh, The flautist is now having a lot of success with a group called Underground System Afrobeat, who just recently put out a record. They're touring all over the world. Uh, You really should check her out. And um, they write their own music as well as perform the music of other people. And that was really an interesting idea for me. Both of these trios did that. And so I had been playing in some improvisation ensembles in um, Berkeley and Oakland with Fred Frith. Uh, under And um, one of my professors, Myra Melford, was really... Uh, and you should check out Myra's music. She's amazing. And Fred, if you don't know Fred, you're a guitar player. Do you know who Fred Frith is? mm hmm Oh, geez, you got to know Fred Frith. Okay, I'll check We'll talk out. about this later. Uh, <laughs> We've got a lot of homework. Uh, we do, but that's great. Fred, I mean, yeah. So I was working with these improvisation ensembles where I was playing guitar, and I'd written pieces for them, and then I, I saw these guys, and I was like, oh, my God, they're just so great, and I need to write a piece for them. And it was funny when I was in this improvisation ensemble, like I just kind of had this joke of an idea when we were getting drunk afterwards. And I told my friend who's a fantastic saxophonist and um, he's a fantastic ethnomusicologist as well. And I just said, oh, you know what, Um, because we were working with these kids who Maybe couldn't read music and stuff, and I was just kind of like, oh, well, okay, we're not going to notate music. Well, here's how I'm going to communicate with them. Um, I really love Rolling Stone's Gimme Shelter. Um, Let's just take the first 27 seconds of Gimme Shelter and kind of mix it up and separate it in terms of time, in terms of pieces and instrumentation. and uh, Write a piece like that. It was kind of a joke. Mm Mm-hmm. Then I ended up in this seminar with Myra Melford where I had to write these pieces, and I was like, actually, this sounds like something I could do. And uh, so, really, what shelter is, and you picked up on it completely, Jared, this building of this. Kudos stuff. to
0: you, buddy. Good work. Ha-da, ha-da. <laughs> so,
2: this, this uh, first, I guess you can't play Gimme Shelter by this town right <laughs> <laughs> nope, no no, <nope, laughs> unfortunately not
0: but our listeners out there can definitely give it a listen so you listen to the first uh, so
2: jared you remember that end right the it ends with this snare right mm-hmm. it's like about to start it's building yes. like it's about it's so it's the intro of the song that's like 27 seconds long and do you remember how long shelter was jared
1: uh, thirteen going on fourteen minutes.
2: Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so basically that's the idea. So um I'm I'm glad you chose that piece. That's one of I have to say that is my favorite piece of my own to hear performed.
0: Oh wow. I was going to ask you that question. Um, so good work. <laughs> that, uh,
2: at least as of right now. But I I think part of it has to deal with my connection to those six musicians and actually the the recording that you heard is of seven musicians Helen Newby the cellist also plays on that mm. and um just them and great memories of being around them and um uh, yeah I if, if these guys listen to it I'd love to get you in the studio to record it properly anyways but <laughs> uh yeah that would uh, it, it was it was. It's wonderful because I give them enough freedom, and this is something that I like in my pieces. I'm always looking to discover something in every performance. A lot of composers, um, I don't want to say this in a negative way, but a, a lot of composers want their pieces to, they, they have an idealized version in their head and they communicate it to the performers in that way in a notated strictly notated precise way just play the music it, kind of situation yes, just play it exactly as yep. this is and that's it i am not the same way i want i mean there are certain times when i am very precise and there's certain times when i'm not i'm very precise in knowing what i want but I also want to be surprised. I'm precise in the structure and the architecture of it. Maybe not in the absolute details as they unfurl in time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I have recordings of this piece that are, that are uh, longer and shorter and whatever. Um, but, uh, I mean this also, I, I, one of the greatest experiences of having a piece performed and reaction from the audience, um, but when it, when it was premiered, a friend of mine was sitting close to me. And like you were saying, the tension building up. At some point, she started weeping. Wow. And I mean, if you think about and, and I don't know if you guys know the song, Give Me Shelter by the Stones and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and, it's, and its history. And, and my friend, Owen Weaver, who was a percussionist who played in Concert Black and played, he wrote this kind of short. Essay write up about it. I mean, it was the anti '60s hippy dippy thing. It was it was Altamont. It was about all the dark stuff that happened. It was the post apocalyptic '60s kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, or really pre apocalyptic '60s kind of thing, and dark. And uh, you know, the the chorus, the background singers are singing rape, murder. I mean that's like what they're singing, and so yeah, that aspect comes out in the, the the, the mood and the the. Dark. I mean, you think about, I mean, I think about Gimme Shelter, and I think about all those Martin Scorsese films that have the in there where these guys are getting shot, these right. these guys are getting <laughs> whacked, right? And uh, and and then you know she's she's crying and and. and it's affecting people, like you said, there's this tension and tension, and then at the end, when that drum beat comes in, which is the beginning of the song, mm-hmm. right and then silence and the if you hear the recording of that, the drums come in of that, that performance, I'd probably edit it out, but it's and you hear somebody go, Ha. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez! Oh no! Like, no, I love it. I love uh, it. The piece started, and and then in there, there's somebody crying. I had a, I had laughter,
0: and I had tears. Everything you want.
2: Exactly. It ran the gamut. The, the
0: emotional spectrum had been covered. Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. No. That it was huge for me.
2: Putting
1: that context to it, it makes a lot more sense to me because the song constantly is giving me. You know, it gives you that, that uh, you know, adds that, that tension, that pressure, and then another part comes into it, so it sort of alleviates that, and it gives you almost a, a false sense of, of safety. You know, you feel comfortable hearing that other part come in, and then you, it keeps building up until eventually mm-hmm. it, you don't have any of it. You, you know, you think you're going to get it again, and then you don't get any shelter. And so a- adding that, and that it makes a lot of sense to me. It adds a lot more... Well, Context you know the, the story the of
2: the song. Uh, it, I mean, the Maisels brothers had that document. You guys know about Altamont, right? No, no man. no. What's it We are not as a <laughs> so, scholar. So Altamont as you are, was right. like. So the Stones were really pissed that they didn't play Woodstock, and so they did their own little version of it. They tried to do their own thing. The Altamont uh, Speedway out in California and they were trying to have this big festival and you know this was after Woodstock and Woodstock was free everybody you know whatever all this mm-hmm. stuff well how do we afford this how do we do all this well the brilliant move was to hire the hell's angels as security the mazels <laughs> brothers if you know those guys are documentarians albert mazels uh they filmed a documentary about it just like Woodstock had its documentary And actually, in the film, you see, and this happens during the song, Give Me Shelter, an African-American man is stabbed by one of the security guys. And the whole concert ends up, I mean, it was the disaster. It was the anti-Woodstock. Didn't a few people die there? I I don't know if other people, but one guy got stabbed by the security, by the Hell's Angels, and was caught on camera. So, you know, that was the end of, I mean, that was the end of the 60s. Mm-hmm. That was that was part of the whole, that whole flower power, all that stuff. That was the end, Altamont. So that song is very much about, or that piece sums it up, and that harsh end. Yeah,
1: that that makes a lot of sense. I'm I'm glad I chose that one. That was um, good good choice by me, Jared. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, good choice. Good yeah. choice. <laughs> I would give you some
0: serious kudos, Jared. And I I had listened to the piece a few times. And got similar similar feelings from it, and um, it's it's weird though. After you listen to it the first time and you go back to it, I guess because you kind of know what's going to happen. I really enjoyed the building of the layers. Absolutely. After hearing it for, because the first time I was kind of like, what, Wait, what? What's going You're on?" Just here? kind
2: of in the murk. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. And so it was really enjoyable. And uh,
2: if you listen to it again, I think one of the more beautiful moments is, like I said, they were all performers, but. I you know so in the instructions of the piece it says play, <laughs> and this is it says you can play any instrument. Pitches and stuff are indicated, you know, motifs are indicated, and things like that are indicated. But it says as far as instrumentation, you can play any piece or sorry any instrument that has ever been used on any Rolling Stones record. Oh sweet! And so I mean they they could play almost anything. Um, but one of the things that they, I remember them asking me in early on the rehearsal, like, rehearsal process was like, can we vocalize? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the more haunting moments is when a couple of the ladies are vocalizing. Mm-hmm. It's just
0: really. It's
2: eerie. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's it's, it's some, uh, some crazy st- emotional shit. Yeah, some if you ready
0: to. Go ahead, if, go ahead. If you're ready to get the hair, you know, standing yeah. up on the back yes. of your neck, that's definitely what will happen at those parts.
1: Yeah. Some of your compositions, do they have, they have, a, like, electronic components to the, to them, don't they?
2: Sure, absolutely. So um, when
1: uh, when you're, uh, you know, choosing people to perform your piece, how do you factor in that aspect of it?
2: Um. Okay, I, I mean, I not sure I understand the question, but the, the electronics, I guess the way it always works with composers is you have to figure out what people are playing. Right. right? So the electronics for me is always, it's like, oh, that's my job. But I don't want to do a job when it has to be performed and I might not be there all the time. Right. So I always kind of figure out a way, the most simple, easy way, because I've seen, and especially with what I do... In the field I'm in, like in the sphere I'm in, there are people who write some incredibly complex electronic patches and programs that do crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. And invariably it always fails. So I always <laughs> write um, things that uh, I think are no-brainer things to work. Like, for example, tomorrow you'll see it should it should all go off very easily and I don't have anything to do with that performance. He should do it completely himself. Um, but, I, I mean, does that answer your question? I'm not sure yeah, exactly what yeah, you're was Yeah,
1: that was essentially my question. I didn't know if maybe, if it was, if those parts were performed live, or if maybe there was some sort of track in addition to the instrumentation part of uh, it. In,
2: in Shelter, to be very clear, there are no electronics.
1: Yeah, I wasn't actually, I wasn't talking about that one specifically, but okay. I did listen to some other ones, and I felt like, I, I, I believe I heard some electronic parts. Yeah. And,
2: Okay. I mean, uh, a a couple of them, yeah.
1: I wasn't sure if if those were were performed live as well or if those were tracks that were played in addition to...
2: Yeah, okay. So, yeah, we call this kind of like fixed media. So, like, yeah, most of the time what I'm doing, um, except for... uh, There are a couple of pieces where I don't do this, but most of the time what I'm doing is I'm uh, having one of the performers basically press play on Mm. a... Of triggering some sort of right. playback. But I always kind of filter and do something with the playback. So it's always inst- unstable. Like this piece that's being performed tomorrow, um, the speaker is implanted in the uh, bell of the saxophone. So mm. everything that the saxophonist plays, and their body, and their instrument, and the room that they're in changes the sound of the electronics. Entirely. So oh, okay. it's not it's not a stable thing. Um, it's always kind of floating about and different.
1: Oh, okay. Interesting. Right.
2: And that's,
0: that's cool. really, really fascinating when you think of how a lot of composers approach, you know, their music being performed, right? Especially if you look at the tradition of, you know, you write it at this tempo, here's the notation, play it, right? right? And I think it's really beautiful that you are getting... You know, you're one, you're allowing the performers to have the freedom to also have their own voice, which I think traditionally, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the expert here, but correct me if I'm wrong, I think a lot of composers, they want the composer's voice to be heard, right? This was the thing that they had written. They want. Well, know. I do
2: think that um, the performers who perform my music feel the same way. Okay. But I'm trying to. My voice is coming through them and the idea of my pieces and specifically the things I've been writing in the last, I don't know, four or five years are these things I call performer-specific. So I want to specifically bring out the unique characteristics of that performer that is performing that piece. Mm
0: -hmm. It's
2: not that I write the piece for one specific person. I want whoever it is who plays it to show their... Um, capabilities their specific talents mm-hmm.
0: their musicality even their limitations sure <laughs> absolutely. absolutely and that
2: it comes out I, I mean that it's interesting for me and it's um, yeah I mean like you'll see in Cuba tomorrow there are moment like I was rehearsing with uh, Mikhail and I was like yeah you know we were talking about this one part and I'm like basically the idea is that you know I mean, I, like, I don't want you to do that, but the idea is that you basically run out of breath here. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm running out of breath here. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: right, <laughs>
0: right. I like that. That's an interesting way to approach it. I, I, I like that a lot. Exactly. Absolutely. So for our, all of our listeners out there, uh, check out on our Twitter, Untranslatable1, we will have the link to uh, Shelter. Thank you, sir. Uh, by Ravi Katapa. It is a fantastic piece. Uh, we hope we didn't spoil too much of it um, but uh, it'll definitely give you a different insight while you give it a listen and uh, yeah it's absolutely fantastic and uh, do you have any other questions for Ravi, Jared? Uh, I mean, I could talk to you for hours, but
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> really, I feel here. like
2: I just rambled. I, I like, <laughs> no, took over fantastic. the whole thing. I don't know. That's why we you. wanted you yeah. as a guest. I, <laughs> I, exactly. well, I wanted to crack more jokes. I just really, I don't know.
0: <laughs> we can always have you on as a guest again. We've we've definitely <laughs> yeah. enjoyed ourselves.
1: And and also, yeah, we should definitely have you back sometime because I I do want to get more into your travels at some point too. Uh, okay. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Food and drink and all that stuff. Yeah. I love to talk about that. I Mine. Mean, you know, I'm a, you know, uh, I'm an
1: amateur you, chef myself, so I, I will. I would love to pick your brain about well, food. Well, at and some
2: point, yeah, and and you should uh, have me uh, Skype in when I'm in uh, Paso and back in wine country. It's a good I idea. Oh,
0: that's a great idea. Absolutely, <laughs> <Yeah>. Absolutely. <laughs> We'll make that happen. So, to all of our listeners out there, I think that's a hopefully a fair, uh, you know, fairly obvious telltale sign. Hopefully, we'll have Ravi back again sometime soon. We can talk about travels, food, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, enlighten us and our listeners as well on your compositions and all sorts of things, music as well. And we really appreciate it here at the Untranslatable podcast. And uh, for all of our listeners out there who are curious, well, we've heard so much from Ravi. Where can we find his stuff? Check out ravikatapa.org for information on his performances. Also, uh, just some basic information about you as a person and as a composer.
2: Yeah, the performances might not be so updated. But uh, yeah, you can uh, check there, send me an email, whatever. Go to my SoundCloud page if mm-hmm. you just Google my name. My last name is Katapa, K-I-2-T's, A-2-P's, A.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'll also tweet out the, uh, the SoundCloud link as well when the episode drops.
2: And definitely put that Afghan wigs thing in there. We'll do oh, that yeah. <laughs> just for you yeah, as, yeah. A, as a tribute to
0: use our guest. Uh, absolutely. Yes, I will. So, yeah, so to all of our listeners out there, we really appreciate your support. And uh, let us know if you have any questions for us or for Ravi, and we can uh, definitely relay them his way you can contact us, contact us sorry i can't talk tonight you can contact Ooh, us scott at, i know right <laughs> you can contact us at untranslatable at gmail.com check out our website for untranslatables links to our episodes um, and all sorts of other fun things at untranslatable podcast.com check out the twitter as we mentioned for the song of the pod untranslatable one And of course, as always, check out that poppin' Instagram page, Untranslatable Podcast. And lastly... Spread a little love. As Jared always says, make sure five-star reviews, iTunes and Stitcher, and give us some feedback. If you have any guests you'd like us to have on, if you have any Untranslatables you would like us to share, or any questions you would like us to discuss or answer, let us know. So we appreciate it thanks again for uh the enlightening conversation thank you guys and the fun we really it appreciate fun. it robbie yeah. and uh to all of you as we say here thanks jared oh thank Q-yame. you it's great to meet you and muchas gracias